0: Or on the Ear Verm Network.
1: Frederick the Great, a clear vision. Welcome to the art of war gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. and I'm Thumbs, and we are coming to you here tonight to talk about the first chapter of Frederick the Great's instruction to his generals, and we are actually really excited about it. At least I know I am. I'm, I'm kind of a Frederick the Great fanboy in a lot of ways. The guy is a, a bit of a personal hero of mine in, in some ways. He could have treated his wife better, admittedly. But when it comes to to uh, being a military commander, oh my gosh, I just, you know, you probably have heard it over the last, uh, in the last episode. And you'll definitely hear it in this episode and in uh, future ones. I I kind of like the dude.
0: We were definitely talking before we started recording and you kept saying oh i agree with him here oh i agree with him here i'm like eventually well, malark you agree with him everywhere except for the wife part
1: which is which is kind of a, a stark contrast to the machiavelli book where i feel like i was arguing with machiavelli every like paragraph or so <laughs> book 2
0: machiavelli or malark argues with the dead
1: guy yeah yeah that that entire section could have just been machiavelli or malark argues with the dead guy he had some good points, but you can you can tell the difference between an established, um, practiced military person who understands what they're doing and has put it into practice, and somebody who has simply done so uh, as a basically a, a theorist you know, which is what Machiavelli was. He had a lot of interesting ideas, which I don't think he ever had the, the ability to put into practice, like actually use in a practical manner. Or as Frederick, he writes this book about his ideas and then proceeds to go on and win several wars with these ideas. So not only are they very succinct, very interesting thoughts, but they're also proven thoughts, which as a scientific person, I'm very, very pleased about, you know. Uh,
0: this is one of the fun things that I've been having with making this podcast we did two books called the art of war and then this one is not the same name but it's the same freaking thing and at some point i was starting to worry that we were going to get too much cases of repeating ourselves but the books are coming at it from such different points of view that it is at least so far not been the case like at all
1: I think if we ever started doing uh, like multiples within the same culture or the same time frame, so if we were to do like Vegetius's um instruct like the military institutions, and then we were to do uh something a, a, a similar Roman uh theorist.
0: Tacticus or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh
1: it would be a, it would be a very similar idea because they're all based on the same legion tactics, it's the same culture, the same ideas that are going into your to your military science there. Whereas, but if we're, there's, there's enough books out there and there's enough cultures out there that have been at war and have written about the concept that I, I'm not sure we're going to run out of perspectives, which I think is really cool. Anytime soon, at least. Um... And, and speaking of perspectives, we have been getting a lot of really, really good ones from you guys. Uh, the online interaction recently has been just outstanding with you guys having conversations over the memes and sending us messages. Um, I, I, we've just been having a great time having a, a conversation with y'all. So I just wanted to say thank you to y'all for, for listening to the show and uh, yeah, keep the conversation going. We're really liking the, the chat.
0: Yeah, it's as we say all the time, that if we hear from you we can make better content for you.
1: Exactly. Exactly. The, the feedback lets us know what we're doing good uh, and what we need to work on. So we appreciate the, the constructive criticism and the encouragement that we've gotten from everybody so far. And we hope to continue doing good things for you. Uh, and an exciting note on my side on that regard, I'm finally getting a space by which to do this in, in a more controlled way. At the moment, I've been doing it in my living room which is a space that I share with my wife and my cat, uh, which is also we're in a family house where I share walls with uh, my younger sibling, my mother and my aunt. Um,
0: We're Eastern European. Don't judge us. Well, and right now we're still quarantined. So not only do we have all of that, but I'm in my house in my living room with the neighbor cat that likes to come by four rats, my fiance and our roommate. So There are so many possible things to work around here. So the
1: thing I'm excited about on this front is that we've had a shed on the property that we haven't really used for a while. Like it's, it's stored a few things that could also be stored in the garage, but it's just, been there. And it's a decently sized shed. It's a 12 by eight shed. And so what we're doing is we're throwing up some fiberglass insulation. We're throwing up some drywall. We're going to paint. We're going to put in some nice bookshelves and a desk and a wargaming table. And it's going to be a little studio for me. So I am absolutely stoked about that. It'll be nice and quiet. Uh, I can go out there and work whenever I want to. Um, so I'm, I'm really stoked about that. Um, Get a space heater for the winter and it'll be perfect. We have a space heater for the winter and an air conditioner for the summer. It'll be uh Oh man, yeah. Be a nice spot. Um but I, I was that got me to thinking about I was I'm wondering what y'all are doing about uh about your wargaming right now. Like what kind of spaces do you have set up at, at your homes or at wherever you're stuck uh, for the quarantine uh, where you're kind of getting by? Uh, and what, you, what have you been doing? Have you been doing some painting? Have you been doing some building? Have you been making some garb, making some weapons, uh, making new lore? Um, all that stuff is really cool. And, and we'd love you to share it. Um, if you want to post it on our page anytime, uh, what you're working on painting wise or crafting wise or, or whatever you're working on, we'd love to see it.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: It's, it's all, it's not just the art of war gaming as in like the art of doing war gaming, but it's also the art as in like
0: art art of people who are actively wargaming
1: because I'm not much of an artist. You guys may have seen some of the memes I've been making and
0: you know, I, they're
1: they're pretty fire all things considered, but I'm also I'm I'm not like <laughs> there's a reason that I only make educational memes. Um so I'd love to see some stuff on that page that, you know, is is pleasant to look at. You know what I'm saying?
0: Oh yeah. Uh I'm I'm real excited for you to get that space cuz it's not quite the same but well okay actually it's pretty much exactly the same. Uh having my own art space, having a dedicated art room to work in. I had it. I don't have it as much right now, but I'm going to have one again soon. And it's so exciting just to have this place of this is my workspace. But fun work. And it's
1: dedicated. And that's yeah. the thing cuz like Again, and it's, it's, it's no fault of anybody else's. They come home from work and they're like, you know, I'm ready to relax. I'm ready to put on a show, listen to some music. Um, the cat, you know, is just being the cat. That's what he does. Um, but of course I'm, I'm, I'm gearing up to work. This is my workspace too. So it's, it'll just be nice to have those two spaces separate, um, to be able to, to be able to go there and and do what I need to do and not have that interfere with everybody else's lives. I'll enjoy that. Um. But again, like I was saying, it's been hard, but hard for all of us to to do anything in regards to the war gaming thing. I've been playing Shadow of War. And while it's not something that requires a whole lot of tactical know-how, um, first off, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, um, for me, at least it's an Xbox game that is based on Lord of the Rings and you play the part of a ranger who is kind of possessed, sharing a body with Celebrimbor, uh, who is the elf who kind of started everything. He's the one who made the rings for Sauron. He was tricked into making the rings for Sauron. And so the, the game is about his vengeance kick, trying to get back and, and you end up commanding armies of orcs. Um, and it's kind of cool, but, but everything about the game is about preparation while you're in the heat of battle. You don't get to actually issue commands actively to everybody. It's not like an RTS. You're you you are on the battlefield fighting alongside everybody. So all of the, everything you do towards victory comes beforehand. What siege beasts have you equipped to your army? What kind of troops do you have? Do you have any, uh, large creatures that can batter down walls and enemy captains? Those kind of things are very important. So like this, this preparation factor is, uh, is the most important fact of the game. And, and I, and I think that's the way with most war. And I think we're going to see that today with what we examine in this chapter. Um, but I think Thumbs, you've been playing a similar game where preparation is absolutely everything.
0: Oh, yeah, I I have been staring at Assassin's Creed Black Flag, which is the the Pirates Assassin's Creed on the switch for like six months, like pretty much since I got a console. I've been wanting to buy this game and I finally gave in just this week, Uh, finally started to play again. And I have just gotten to the point in the story where not only do I have my ship, but I can start to upgrade my ship. And my first thought as soon as I got there, because I've played this game before, but I've never beaten it or anything like that. But my first thought when I got here was, man, I'm going to ignore the main storyline for so long while I upgrade the heck out of this ship. I'm going to have the best pirate ship on the
1: seas. You're going to go after some of those early bosses and early missions. They're going to send some schooners at you and you're just going to have this god mode ship that you're sending at them. That's the way. Frederick would be
0: proud of you. It's time to unleash five times as many guns as them, even though they're three times my size. That was straight up Frederick's small, yippy, aggressive dog style.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and if you look at the numbers that uh, Prussia was able to bring to most of its wars, and the numbers that its enemies brought, um, that small dog, fierce energy was exactly what he used to win it. Um, and so that's and, and that's so I think that's that's important uh, that we kind of think about that, that we think about this idea of aggressive. Uh, aggressive tactics because that's what Frederick was all about. He was all about pressing the advantage, pressing every opportunity and making your opponent make those mistakes that precipitated their fall. And there's going to be uh upcoming chapters where we talk about that idea specifically, but for today, I think we're going to talk about the clear vision that Frederick had before any engagement because he came into it with this preparation. And to begin with this clear vision, we need to talk about having an eye for the offense.
0: So Frederick the Great, or Freddy, as my brain cannot stop calling him anytime I think about him. It's a fun nickname. It's so disrespectful. I'm sorry. But it's it's just uh, was so obsessed with specific prep and knowing your enemies so well and knowing their actions and knowing their leaders and knowing... It's stuff that everyone tells you you should do, but
1: he, like, lived it. And, and there's a reason that everybody tells you that. There's a reason that Sun Tzu spent a lot of time talking about how to know your enemy. There's a reason that Machiavelli spent quite a, a bit of time talking about how one should know their enemy. And there's a reason that Frederick spends quite a bit of time talking about it too, because it's one of the most important parts of war. If you don't know who you're going up against and what they're bringing
0: to bear, you can't make a good plan. That's just, that's just the truth of it. The nice thing is for wargaming, this is pretty easy, Uh, obviously, with something like 40K, knowing even if you don't know your opponent, like if you're an attorney or something, if you know, oh, they're using orcs, knowing what orcs do will help in that front. Uh, For Belegarth, it's also pretty simple, you know, knowing, oh, hey, that's God Squad over there. Oh, hey, that's the EBF. I I have fought them, I have hung out with them. Afterwards, I have an idea of how they operate.
1: And even if you haven't hung out with them or fought them, you may have listened to a Art of War gaming special on them, so you might have a little bit of knowledge that way too, or watched shameless a shameless plug or watched a a video that included them. There's a lot of YouTube videos that include various Teams that are going in ten-man tournaments or such, where you can study tactics there too. So there's a lot of different resources available to know your enemy. And like Thumbs was saying, you may not know the specific person at a Warhammer 40k tournament, but it's a good idea to be familiarized with all the codexes. I feel very blessed that in our little uh, Warhammer club that we have here, uh, that we have a good representation of the different sides, so that like we can get a familiarity with what the different codexes are capable of.
0: Uh, real quick to jump back to the videos thing you were talking about for Bellagarth, watching the Ten Mans, etc. At the time that we're recording this, we are still in quarantine. This is a really nice thing you can do when you can't fight to still get some of that yay fighting adrenaline.
1: And to get you studying as well, because one of the things that you're doing the whole time you're on the field is studying your opponents and figuring out better ways to tweak your style and to tweak your form to make you a more effective fighter. There's no reason to have to stop that just because we're indoors. In times past, if, uh, there was a quarantine or if there was some reason that people couldn't campaign or couldn't fight, they absolutely suffered for it, but we don't have to, we can practice indoors and we can also continue to work our minds by continuing to expand our repertoire of war gaming and, and military science stuff. Absolutely. Um, so what what uh, Frederick specifically recommends here when he's talking about knowing your enemy is knowing their alliances, their resources, and the nature of their country. So when he says alliances it's of course who are they working with, and how are they working together? This was very important for Frederick in the time that he was writing this because he was constantly outnumbered by his neighbors, and so knowing who was working together meant that he knew which way the, t- the attack was coming from basically
0: um as very similar for us on the field this is one of those things that when you look at the era it it seems really like obvious like oh yeah know that France is allied with Italy or whoever but we have to remember we've described this era before as a giant family feud with armies involved Yeah. And sides are always shifting this was such a a major factor of how the countries worked at the time of who they were allied with could change many times in a very short period of time.
1: They could be, the worst of enemies with somebody. And then they go to a cousin's feast and they have a nice drink with somebody. And then during the next diplomatic meeting, they couldn't be best or friends. And now they're ready to go and conquer the world together. I felt like during the great Northern war that kind of happened, like between Prussia and Russia, like they weren't friends kind of before that. And then they were, and then they weren't. And it's just, I was like, who said the wrong thing at dinner when is what
0: it all seems to me. Oh, I mean, in this, in this chapter, he directly insults the Russians. This chapter, the next chapter, I I read a couple in advance, sorry. But uh, he directly insults the Russians being like, this is why they're going to hate us. Later on, Russians are pretty much why he has money to keep going.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so even within the, the span of his reign, the interaction with another major foreign power changes significantly. And this this goes over many times more when we've got the microcosm of something like bellegarth or another physical foam fighting community or another uh, physical fighting community where you have these groups that have to work together like i don't remember the last time i went to an event and saw somebody win the the banner or win the the title or whatever without help from other units without some sort of confederacy forming that uh the precipitated one or the whole group to win and so this this working together isn't just important for winning but it's also important for knowing who you're going up against like um you want to be on the winning team
0: and alliances can change between rounds even you know this round god squad and bof ended up aligned right that they could hit horde together and take out horde next round maybe god squad and horde or something like hey you know it would be a good idea to like calm down the aggression of the bof like it, it changes so fast in belagarth on a event level or even just a this round level
1: and not even for interpersonal reasons it's not even because so and so didn't like the color of somebody else's shoes or because they insulted them over feast it could be like you said um the first couple of rounds one team ends up winning the first couple of fights and so everybody's suddenly like oh we need to start working against that person. And so suddenly the nature of the field suddenly changes again. And so the, the alliances are shifting constantly. And so being aware of this isn't just waking up at the beginning of the day or at the beginning of the event or the beginning of the tournament and going, I know exactly how this is going to play out. It's a constant level of observation to make sure that you know what the field looks like, because that's something that changes very quickly, even more so in something like what we do in the physical wargaming community. Um, and so the resources, the second part of this is the resources. And this is just as important as alliances, because if somebody comes at you armed with the barest of bones, they don't have the best of anything. Your opponent was enabled to put the most of their money into their army, or their gear isn't the greatest. And And this is on a larger scale that's going to make an effect whereas if you're going against a force that is extremely well armed everybody has the top of the line gear or your opponent has like the very best units that he they know how to use in the best of way um then that's something to be considered your tactics need to change based on the resources that your opponent has to bear yeah we
0: told a story about uh a fight at snowball where one side picked up nothing but like spears for the most part and how the tactics of fighting six spears is versus fighting a good mix of sword and board and poles or just fighting single blue, all three of those are going to have wildly different responses that you need to have.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and again, like we had said, that first round, we went against you, and it was a phalanx's dream, because we, not having as many pole arms, or really any pole arms, if I remember correctly, decided to square up against you and basically just line fight it out, and that didn't work, and then after that we said, oh no, 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 we're not doing that again, um... And it did not work again. So yeah, and and that's a good point too. The unit composition, that's also a part of resources. What are they bringing to the field? You know, they might be bringing an orc force, but just because somebody is playing orcs, that doesn't mean that you would know exactly what they're going to bring because a boy heavy force is going to require different tactics than somebody who is relying more on mechs. Uh, Somebody who has more kilocans or something along those lines. Same thing with tyranids. I've seen really good Tyranid lists that are just Termagant and hormagant swarm. You just have bodies upon bodies on the field that are piling upon their opponents. And then you also have very good tyrannid lists that are primarily monsters, where you don't have that high body count, but just some really big hard-packing monsters that do a lot of damage. So, just because somebody is bringing a certain type of army, that doesn't mean that you know exactly what they're going to use. You also have to have a familiarity of the units themselves. If you fought Tyranids once and it was against a hot, like a horde Tyranid list, that's great. You know a little bit about fighting a horde Tyranid list, but you need to make sure that your your mind is flexible when you go up against a monster Tyranid list, because the rules are going to be very, very different. And it's the same thing in Belegarth. You know, you might go up against the BOF. We just did a, a show about them, so I'm going to pick on them a little bit. You might go up against the BOF and they might have a really well-proportioned force like a good number of pole arms to archers to sword and borders and then they might have a, a certain way of fighting that way and then another time you might come up against them and they might be super pole arm heavy you shouldn't think that you know exactly how to fight the bof just because you fought them the one time with the weapon composition like Thumbs said this resource composition is extremely important and plays a huge role oh yeah So the last part of knowing your enemy, at least as far as Frederick the Great is concerned for this part, is the nature of their country. And so this is in part two things. For one thing, for me, this is knowing the people themselves. For instance, knowing that Wrath has a program for fighters that are under a year and trains them up gives you an idea of what to expect about the nature of their country or the nature of the people that they're bringing to the war. The other part of understanding the nature of the country is the literal word, the nature of the country. What is the climate? What is the terrain, uh, your geography, all of that sort of thing. Uh, those are important too. So I think this is a kind of a two-fold idea here, which is understanding, um, like where you're going and kind of what the quality of where you're going is. And this is good for tournaments and events for both Meligarth and Warhammer 40K. Um, because knowing that a certain tournament has a lot of terrain means that you're going to prepare certain types of tactics as opposed to other tournaments that don't have a lot of terrain and the same thing for physical war gaming if you know a place is going to be heavily wooded you're perhaps going to bring a different uh, different types of weapons to that than you are if it's just a flat open expanse or hilly
0: yeah my 10 foot spear is not going into a woods but on a hill oh absolutely oh yeah
1: we're going to some place with like flat open plains like uh where we go for war of the gate out there at jason's place that's spear heaven out there that's that's lovely nothing to get caught on whereas uh if you were you were to come east for Ragnarok and we were to go fight on that mountain in the that woodwork i mean i see people bring spears in there but they're also locals you know they know how to use a spear <laughs> in that thick undergrowth
0: yeah they're trained for it that that's when i pull out like my 6 foot spear
1: sure i would never use arrows i mean like in real life arrows in the woods absolutely but in in wargaming no thank you i'd like to be able to find my arrows again that'd be nice
0: well, and it turns out our arrows aren't as sleek, so it takes quite a bit more space to move through when you have to arc them True. still. True that.
1: True that. So these are the, the, the types of knowledge that uh, that are good for an offense before you go. Again, knowing their alliances, knowing their resources, and knowing the nature of their country. Was there anything else you wanted to, to add on that note, Thumbs?
0: That's pretty straightforward there. Uh, sorry, I feel like I keep just going, oh yeah, that's, that's great at the end of these. But honestly, Frederick is refreshingly straightforward after Machiavelli.
1: Yeah. Machiavelli was, was very convoluted as again, most theorists are, whereas Frederick, this was supposed to be written for, for people to understand. He wanted his officers to be able to enact these things. And so this book is far simpler, I think, for that reason, because it was written for soldiers and not for aristocrats. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So the next part of this having an eye for the offense is literally looking for the best points of advance. And you do this by analyzing a a couple of key factors. The first of which is terrain. The second of which is the ability to maintain lines of communication. And the second one, which is the actual weak points themselves. Now, terrain is extremely self-explanatory. Machiavelli had sections on that. We had full chapters on it with Sun Tzu. So we're not going to get too much into the nitty gritty about terrain here. But when you're looking for a good place to advance, you want to have good terrain to cover your approach. You want to make sure that you're not going to get chewed apart by artillery or by archers on your way in. And then you want to make sure that you're able to establish a good foothold once you are there. These are the some important factors of terrain for both physical and uh, tabletop war gaming.
0: Yeah. Do I have a safe way to get there? Will it work against me? Will I have a safe place to land?
1: Yep. Yep. And so the, the terrain factor is very important, but as you're moving into the area, we also have to maintain our lines of communication because, uh, keeping those, those access points between your, uh, chains of command and between your resource, your logistics chain is very, is almost as important as the fighting itself, if not more important as again, all three of these guys we've talked about have discussed, starving your enemy out is the best way to do things. And so, maintaining your lines of communication is exactly the opposite of what your enemy is attempting to do to you in the first place.
0: As we have said elsewhere, but it's always worth re-talking about. Don't actually starve your enemy.
1: Yeah, no, th- this is this Not is this gaming. is something in real life <clears throat> that works extremely well um, in in the kind of communities that we're trying to build. We're obviously feed your enemy after the battle it's a good idea because they give you good sport but if actual lives are on the line
0: yeah you got to use what you got to use i just the entire time i was reading this part i kept imagining someone just like sneaking into Gulf camp and running off with like our grill and being like hey
1: we didn't mean it literally guys come <laughs> on come on so yeah, um, that, so that, obviously this isn't literal for this particular part, but um, it, it, the, the lines of communication are because if you're thinking about somebody who's flanking too deeply or a, a part of the line that is getting too too separated from another part of the line and can't support it, then you're not maintaining these lines of communication and these lines of support. And without these lines of support, um, you're going to fall apart. If somebody knows how to exploit them again, if you're going against an enemy that doesn't know what they're doing, you might not be punished for these mistakes, but against somebody who knows what they're doing, you want to make as few mistakes as possible because they will punish you for whatever openings you give them. And so this, this idea is very important for again, um, any type of wargaming because maintaining your continuity, maintaining your cohesion, uh, is, is, it's just very important. I don't know how the, I don't know any other way to put it.
0: Yeah, this is really important, too, for wolf packing, because I was trying to think, because wolf packing is, as we've figured out by now, one of my preferred styles of combat. And I kept reading Freddie here, be like, everything needs to be very strict and regimented. But we can keep we can use these thoughts of here of the lines of communication and not getting too separated is even more important in wolf packing because you don't have that line. So if you get too far separated, you're done. Yeah. But if you you keep the so you can think of this on like the larger scale of army stocking or you can think of it on the very personal scale of I am three steps too far away from Malark to help him if he gets attacked or if I get attacked, he can't come help me.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You're always trying to put yourself in a position that you can take advantage of opportunities, but also help out whoever's next to you to make sure that they don't fall. Because while numbers are not the most important thing in the world, they are still fairly important and you don't want to lose more than you have to, because that's, that's where it starts to become an issue. Um, but before we talk about numbers, because that's a point that Frederick brings up, the last point of this, uh, when you're looking for the best points of advance is to literally look for the weak points. Where are the spots that are going to be easiest to make a breach? Where is the, does the line fail? Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to go there because again, if somebody is, is planning for you, is trying to lure you into a place, you want to analyze and make sure that that's not a trap where you're going or, or, or the, 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 um, The maneuver that you have planned isn't going to put you into a worse place than you would have been. But analyzing where these weak points are gives you an idea of where you can make your numbers count for the most. You don't want to expend your strength upon strength um, and then fight yourself to bloody attrition. That's not, that's a pyrrhic victory. That's not, that's not good for you.
0: Even if you survive, if there's anyone else out on the field, you have no response. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Like you might win that little local fight, but at the larger war you might lose because you've depleted your forces too much. Um, so that, that is something to consider. So the, the numbers point that Frederick makes is a little bit different than the ones we've heard before. When we talked to, when we were listening to Sun Tzu and what he was saying about numbers, he always wanted a numeric advantage. You know, he was always, he was always pressing for the idea of having at least a two to one, if not three to one or 10 to one advantage before you did anything truly audacious. Frederick says, don't worry about that. Um, He says numbers are not really that important unless they outnumber you by more than a third. If they outnumber you by more than a third of your force, then at that point, you need to start really taking into consideration the numbers game. But you also have to understand where Frederick is coming from. His tactics are entirely based on localized superiority and the oblique attack, which is to say hitting weak points with your strong point and an overwhelming strong point at that.
0: When we described him earlier as a little dog, this is where it becomes very apt like he's got that small dog energy to attack anything and there's a quote that I am going to mangle by Terry Pratchett that was saying the advantage of being the little dog or the underdog is that you always have access to somewhere soft to bite.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Um and so it's good to, I guess what it's saying there is it's good to be underestimated and so having fewer numbers can often give the other team a a feeling of superiority that may not be uh, warranted and it may give them a feeling of of kind of cockiness that makes them sloppy. And so again, numbers aren't always everything. Um, but, but I also think they're a consideration, especially in something like physical wargaming. If and it really depends on the people involved, like I've seen five people hold off 20 easily. If those five people are established veterans and those 20 people are under a year and don't really know what they're doing.
0: Oh, that's just pick on my It's, uh, he was, this is again, where his training, like his obsession with having the best trained troops really kicks in. Cause I'll, as you said, five people who know what they're doing versus 20 people who don't. I'll take the five.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and his army was the, some of the best drilled, some of the best prepped. We kind of went over that last episode, uh, when we talked about the army that he inherited from his father, but it wasn't just daddy's army. he also continued the idea with a really intensive drill and really intensive um, like scenario training that made his army ready to accomplish whatever he wanted it to accomplish. I mean, this army was firing four to five volleys a minute like that that's per person is able to like loading a musket and firing it is is Hard and I can't it's like even six think. steps. It's I'm not I'm not practiced at it, but I don't think I could do it in under a minute. Just loading one. And these guys were doing it
0: four to five times in one minute. That's insane. Well, cause I was thinking about this, because I was kind of going through the steps in my head, because I think muskets are I don't know them very well, but I think muskets are cool. But that is opening your thing of powder, pouring it into the musket, putting the uh musket ball in the musket, tapping it down. I skipped a step where you tamped the powder before you put in the musket. There's a, there's a, you
1: put in the cloth. There's a piece of cloth that goes in on top of the powder. And then the musket ball goes in on top of the cloth.
0: And then you tap that down and they've got the like long rod that you can use. Although some people learned how you could just tap the bottom of the gun against the ground and it would make the ball fall down and it wouldn't go as far down. So you had to be a little more careful of like not having your gun pointing down at all because it would roll out right too easy right but like you you know even doing these side things it is as i said six or seven steps it takes forever
1: but that's why they drilled it over and over and over again and that's why it became so second nature to them so they were able to pull these these fast maneuvers and these uh victories against larger forces was because they were firing more times And so it's kind of the same idea. If you want to train yourself to fight against more people, train yourself to fight faster. Train yourself to kill quickly because then you're going to be able to kill more people. Like uh, I really have to concentrate, for instance, when I'm going against a larger number of people because my preferred fighting style is kind of a gentlemanly fencer type thing. I like to cross swords a few times, test my opponent's weaknesses, and then kind of develop the perfect uh, attack sequence to really exploit their... Their their weaknesses. This process is slow. It doesn't it doesn't uh, for a, for a tournament for a one on one tournament it works out pretty great. But for a field combat where other people need me in other places, I have to uh, not really give in to this impulse of mine. I have to make sure that I'm I'm trying to kill quickly because it's a very important skill, especially when you're
0: outnumbered. Yeah. Well, and to drive home quickly, as we said, they were doing four to five shots a minute. Other places were doing two or three on a good day for the most part. Right. Right.
1: So they were like double the average, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. So. Again, when when Frederick was saying this thing about numbers, you have to understand the reason he was able to say that. He had a very very well trained army that was able to do exactly what he wanted to and do it better than just about any other army on the continent at the time. So, uh that's part of the reason he was able to have this idea. So if if your unit or your realm is able to kill much quicker than most other people, then this thought applies to you as well. If not, then you probably want to up your your kill speed. Um so one of the things he says to avoid, it doesn't matter what kind of numbers you have, you want to avoid penetrations, which is to say you want to avoid these, these kind of breakouts where you get in deep behind enemy lines and separated from the rest of your forces. And this is kind of obvious because it, it weakens you and it stretches your resources thin. Uh, it makes it so that you're, you're more susceptible to counterattack and it's just not a good idea all around. And so Frederick's whole thing is the idea of advance Establish yourself, advance, establish yourself, advance. And so it's, it's quick. All of his stuff is very quick, but it's very methodical as well. You want to make sure that you're, you're taking all the prerequisite steps before you take the next step in front of it, basically. So the last thing that he, he wanted to stress, um, in this whole idea of the offensive, and it's something that we've already talked about a little bit, and I want to stress even more is this importance of drill and this importance of prep, because, um, the, the whole idea of his strategy for, for victory, his victory strategy was setting up these stockpiles of resources all around his country and kind of breaking up his army, um, into these smaller sections that all drilled, uh, very extensively, but were ready to go. And the reason this worked for him was that each of those sections were in of themselves very well drilled and kind of drilled the same way. So that when they came together, they could operate as one large force, but we can take this idea and break it down a little bit more. For instance, um, one of the things that my unit does that I like a lot is that at the beginning of the day before the fighting starts, but of course, after you've had your weapons checked, somebody goes around the camp with a big wagon and you all pile your shields and your spears and your arrows and your swords into the wagon, and it's taken up to the field. And so this way you're able to put whatever you want in there. Even if, if you're, if you're like, you know, I'm not sure if I want to use my spear or my shield today, you can bring a larger amount of things because there's a huge amount of it going and that you've got a, a vehicle to carry it in. And what this allows you to do is if the scenario changes on the field, because it's, it's happened to me before where I've been out there and I've had a certain weapon set and then they changed the game type and I was sitting there just perplexed because I wanted a different weapon set than what I had, but I would have to go all the way back to my camp and then come all the way back to the field. And by that time, the battle type might be over. And so I, I would fight with a inferior weapon style for myself for the battle type when it could have been just there the entire time. And so this is a way of maintaining a stockpile nearby. Is just having what you need literally right there on the field, making sure it comes with you at the beginning of the day. And it's the same thing in, in Warhammer 40K. You want to make sure that you're bringing whatever you need with you to the table, whether that's snacks or drinks or your codexes or your dice or your uh, cards or whatever it is that you're going to need for your game. You want to make sure it comes with you at the very beginning. And in the same idea... Um, going around the country, making these stockpiles, we kind of do the same thing in the Dark Angels, um, where I've got a shield and a sword that currently are in Michigan. I haven't seen them for over a year and a half at this point, but they're there for whenever I need them, for if I go
0: east. Yeah, and that way you don't have to transport on a plane and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, you know, this actually made me think, and I didn't think of this in any of the planning or preps, so of course I'm going to bring it up live, as it were. Uh, there is a thing that we see a lot with new people that they have this idea, but that they then take it like two steps too far where they're like, I'm going to bring every weapon style out onto the field at the same time. Yeah. That's over
1: preparation. You've, uh, you've gone too far. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a balance to be maintained here.
0: Uh, It just made me think of it. Uh, so definitely like new people who want to do that. And I get it. I want to play with all my toys too. Bring all those, but leave them on the side of the field. And then you can just vary it up on episode, or not episode, but by battle by battle. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so having that stockpile, like
1: we were saying, makes it so that if you do need to switch it up or you just want to switch it up, maybe, maybe nothing has changed. Maybe you're just feeling bored of using a large sword and you want to go down to using a smaller sword and a shield. That's perfectly acceptable too. And you've got it right there. You don't have to, to walk all the way back to camp and then walk all the way back to the field in order. Cause some, some events, that's not a big deal. Some of the smaller events, like what we here have here in Stygia, you know, that's, that's a five minute walk. That's whatever. It's not that big of a deal. But in some of the larger events out east where you've got like a mile walk back to camp, um, you don't want to have to be doing that right before tournament.
0: Yeah, no. That's not happening. (laughs) I'm not making it back. Well, and even like on the smaller areas, there are so many things that can distract you the moment you leave the field. Hey, that guy over there that I know that I really like, or, oh, hey, those people are offering me food or it's, you know, look at the comfy seat by the fire. So if you have it all there, the temptations are gone too. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I can't, I, I have never been able in the entirety that I've been in Belagarth. I I don't think once I've been able to walk from point A to point B without having some conversation, activity, or otherwise distraction, uh, lengthen my mission quite significantly. That's just, that's just events for you.
0: And then you have to go back to point A because that's, you know, the field. So then Mm -hmm. you have to do it again. By the time it's done, 45 minutes have passed.
1: Absolutely. What, did you have anything else you wanted to add on this idea of uh, having an eye for offense?
0: Um, I did kind of want to mention here something about the writing in the book that he talks when you're reading this, it's different than anything else that we've read because he's not just like, well, when attacking an army does this, he's very specific when attacking Bohemia, I want to do this. When attacking Saxony, I want to do it this way. And I figured we should mention it because it's easy when you're first reading this to go, how is that going to help me? Or like, oh, I don't know what that means because I don't know what Bohemia is. But you can just give yourself a little leeway when reading it and you'll start to pick up the like, oh, here are some of the deeper stuff as opposed to. Now I know how to fight Bohemia in the year 1770.
1: Right, right, exactly. So like when we're going through this, we're, we're paraphrasing a little bit. We're trying to take some of these very specific examples that he's giving and shrink them or expand the ideas into a a general idea or a general rule that can be applied to military science and war gaming. And so we're not on the show specifically going to be talking about how to assault bohemia or saxony but if you're reading along in the book you're going to definitely notice that he's got some very specific plans uh for countries that don't exist really anymore
0: he wanted them he wanted he them. got them actually in a couple of cases yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: well um if if uh, you've got nothing more to add here and i've got nothing more i think it's about time that we move on to speaking about having an eye for defense So as one might suspect from somebody as dynamic and uh, explosive in their military planning as Frederick, he advises, the very first thing he advises when you're thinking about a defense is to avoid one that is rigid. And again, that makes so much sense when when you look at Frederick and the way he fights. But his point is that if you have a very rigid defense... So if this is a defense that is that's is very solidly anchored on like a wall or a terrain piece or the edge of the field or even just uh on a on a shield line then that that means that you're going to be more easily outmaneuvered and enveloped. Um if your enemy is dumb enough to uh, mount a frontal assault against your extremely well-prepared frontal defense, then yeah, you've got a, a really good uh a really good response there. But for anything else, for any other sort of of maneuver, which most people are going to endeavor to do, because, you know, if I look at, across the field and I see a really tight shield wall bristling with pole arms, my first inclination is not to march right up to it and pick a fight. How about you, Thumbs? Are you wanting to march right up and...
0: No, that sounds terrible. Yeah, not so terrible. much. Not it's so much.
1: So, so Frederick advises to... To having, Because nobody's going to want to go there. So um, to rely exactly on that isn't a good idea. It's the same thing in 40K. If you have a very good piece of terrain in the front, something that you're able to to put your entire defense on, and it makes it very unapproachable, it would take a very, very dumb enemy to approach you there. And so I'm not saying don't occupy the very defensible position. I'm just saying don't put all your ducks in a row, or or don't uh, count the chickens before they hatch, or some other uh, barnfowl analogy. Whatever idiom you prefer. (laughs) That says, uh, have a plan B, have a plan B. Don't, don't, don't invest completely in that. Um, and so you might say, okay, what is a good defense? If the whole rigid defense just digging in isn't the best defense, what is the best defense? Well, the best defense is one that is primed to become an offense at any time. This is, this is the idea of a counter, having counters set up and you can do this on every level of, of fighting. You can do this in physical fighting when you're just going one-on-one in like your own form, when you're, when you're like going back and forth in sword play, you can do it on the physical fighting when you've got your teams that are maneuvering against each other, and you can also do it at the strategic level. And so it's just a matter of, of setting up your defenses to become immediate offenses afterwards. And so he's got some examples here that, like Thumbs was saying in the last section, we had to pull these examples from very, very, very specific things uh, that he was talking about in his world. So like attacking Saxony or attacking Bohemia. Um, obviously, we're not doing that. Um, unless we're doing a very specific reenactment, um, it's not very often that we're going to go into the exact situation of attacking Bohemia or Saxony, but the idea is that we're kind of looking at the general idea and pulling the lesson from there. And so the first one is the idea of a shallow flank. And so a shallow flank is one where they're just trying to come around the edge of your flank and, and kind of tip and come down the line. Um, And so the way that you get around this is you set up a defensive unit at the prime of that apex. So where they would be coming around, setting up that oblique angle, that's the prime of the apex is right there. And if you've got somebody set up right there, you are now threatening to do the exact same thing that they want to do. And so you're basically saying, yeah, you can try to go behind me, but the second you do that, I'm going to be down your line too. And so it's, it's kind of putting them in this, this position of, oh, if I, If I do this, I expose myself and most people aren't going to want to expose themselves or their lines. Or if they do, you've got a really good opportunity there.
0: It's kind of the Alexander, the great hammer and anvil strategy. Yeah. That, oh, hey, look, I guess you can hit there, but I'm going to hit you here.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so you're, you're giving them a, 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 lose-lose choice because if they continue to press in, you've got a way to get around. If they don't continue to press in, you've just frozen up that element of their line that is now otherwise, is not doing what it was supposed to do in the first place. And, uh, and so again, this works really well in, in like Bellagarth or in another form of physical wargaming on the field. If you set up one or two people right at that apex who are really fast, who can, who can really make the most of that opportunity if it appears it's going to stop that shallow flank dead in its tracks. Or if it doesn't, you're going to have a good opportunity right ahead of you. I like to do this in terms of a physical fighting of trying to block on the inside at all times. Like when you're throwing your blocks, try to make sure that you've got an inside angle on your blocks, because then immediately from that block, you can launch into an arm strike or a body strike. Uh, And you're right there.
0: What this means if someone doesn't know what you mean by inside angle, means that when you were blocking, you were on the kind of more of the inside of their arm than the outside of their arm. Right. Heart. Right. And
1: again, some of this stuff is going to be easily demonstrated when we have the capability of doing some some better videos uh, to go along with these concepts. But the, these interior lines allow you to do a really a really quick response, a really quick counter that is able to take advantage of
0: that, that uh, weakness. It just puts you closer to their body than on the outside where your block is you know, it could be pretty strong still, but you have to reach around the sword to hit as opposed to just clipping in.
1: Which gives them time to react rather than just having this, this lightning quick counter that that is far more capable of actually doing something rather than, oh, now I've had this whole motion that they've had time to set up a good defense for. Like, yeah, you, you want to minimize that. And so this is a really good chance on all levels of wargaming, on all levels of military science to to set yourself up for a really good counter. And so obviously... The next thing when we're talking about flanking would be a deep flank when they've kind of disconnected from the line, have moved out of people's, uh, threat zones and are going around behind. Um, and Frederick says here, let them, let them detach themselves. Let them get singled out. Let them get so far removed that they no longer have support and then crush them. Um, (laughs) that's what I got out of that section.
0: That's about right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People are always like, oh, the pincer technique is unstoppable. And when the pincer technique works, it absolutely is. But the danger of it is you have now split your army into two pieces that are half the size, obviously, basic requirement of pincer. But if they can hit one of those sides before the other side can come in, you have now defeated the point of your entire technique. So his thing, because he had this yippy rabid Chihuahua energy was sure. Let them split the party and then don't pause to breathe while you're running them down with bayonets.
1: He was particular about this. I've seen it work everywhere else too. Again, and this, and this is really nice. Again, if you're facing a larger force that is trying to maneuver on you, you can use this to put the numbers to your advantage. Um, and so you want to watch for this and, and don't stop them too early. Let them get disconnected. Let them get, uh, behind you, obviously not without supervision, without a response uh, in, in place, but, um, I guess what I'm saying, let them do it because that puts them in a position to get moved upon. And this is the same thing with, with. All levels of wargaming. Does somebody go in for a really deep rap where they have this very extravagant wide motion? Okay, let them get almost there and then duck underneath it, and now they have absolutely no way to recover, and you're right in the death zone. Um, you're doing it in Belgarth, even better. <clears throat> doing it in Warhammer 40k, it's the same kind of idea. I, I love letting my opponents get out of position and being like, "Oh no, what will I do? You've got me pinned, or do you?" <laughs> I think it's an Imperial guard quote of they have us surrounded good. They'll never escape now or something along those
0: lines. (laughs) The trap is sprung. Exactly. On me and on you. Uh, it is a, we've talked about high risk, high reward. This can kind of be a high risk, high reward situation. Absolutely. But when it works, it works. So well, and and again, what what Frederick was
1: working with is a highly disciplined, highly well organized force that is capable of of doing exactly what he says when he when he says it. Um, and so this is to say that if you're a fighter who has really good reflexes and you know your body's going to do what you want it to when you want it to, these are the kind of ideas that you're you're looking for. If you are not at this level, if your realm, if your unit, if you are. Uh Warhammer 40k play style, if your personal fight style is not at the point where you have the muscle memory or the discipline training drill, whatever, to be able to accomplish this stuff, then the message here is to get to that level first, is to make sure that you're focusing on that drill, make sure you're focusing on the discipline first, and then you can accomplish all these cool things. Frederick the
0: Great was kind of the real life equivalent of get good scrub. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So the last thing that he says here in terms of, uh, having this offense that is primed to become a good defense is, is what we were saying before about having that solid line. It's not that he discourages having a nice solid line. In fact, he encourages it. Like if you have a good shield wall with some good pikes and some good halberds and some nasty looking swords behind it and some archers that are, are kind of defending it, that's a good thing because it means that you're encouraging your enemy to break apart and try to move to the sides. You don't want them to want to hit you head on. You don't want them to have that direct confrontation. You wanna discourage that by having this like vicious no man's land in front of you that they have to cross in order to get there. And at that point, they start to maneuver to the sides where you can have these aggressive maneuvers that single them out and put the numbers to your advantage. But the idea is that you're not wholly reliant upon this strong defensive line, right?
0: Flankers, flankers.
1: Yeah. I'm an archer uh, for the most part at this point, And Thumbs uses spear. We're not arguing against line tactics. We love our line tactics, but it's, you need to make sure that they're not exclusively what you have going on. If you want to win.
0: Generally, yes.
1: Which, you know, that's not everybody's consideration, but I, I feel like it is for, for, uh, hopefully, hopefully the people listen to the show. It's something that you want us to win. Yeah. So before we move on to the battle that we're going to talk about today, that I feel perfectly encompasses everything Frederick was talking about in this chapter, we're going to talk about preventing desertions, um, or as the analogy goes, preventing people from leaving your unit, uh, because... That's, that's obviously something everybody wants to have this unit retention. If you have, have taken the time to recruit somebody and bring them in and train them up and get them used to your kind of energy and get used to the way you do things and give them a position, you want them to stick around. And so how do we do this? Um, how do we make sure that people are, are, are staying with us and continuing to give back to the unit that has trained them? And when we're talking about these desertions, um, there's certain types of people who are more likely to do so than others. Thumbs and I are, are kind of in a guilty party here because Frederick says that mercenaries are far more likely to desert than the citizens of any given country. And I would say that that's absolutely true. I, when I'm actually a part of a unit, I fight so much harder than I have when I'm being, like, it's not that I'm, that I don't do my job. It's not that I don't fight, you know, I've been paid or I've been, uh, you know, compensated in some way to go in and participate at a unit. I'm going to give it my best, but there's a certain. The personal aspect's been removed. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a certain, there's a certain level of fighting that you can only achieve when you're fighting for your brothers or your sisters. And so that's what, and that's what, uh, you're trying to accomplish here. And so the desertions, obviously the mercenaries are going to do what mercenaries are going to do, but your citizens, how do you hang on to them? Um, some of the advice that he gives in this chapter doesn't really apply for what we do. For instance, you don't necessarily have to worry about people running off into the woods, um, <laughs> and getting away that way. Cause you know, if somebody wants to leave your
0: unit, they're just going to. Yeah. The closest you're going to have to worry about that is being like, Hey, be on the battle for unit fights. Hey, where weren't you? Oh, we were off in the woods or on the lake or.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. That would be uh-huh. that's a good point. A wall. they could be AWOL. Um, but this is specifically about that unit retention, making sure that people are, are wanting to stay in your unit. And I, I saw that there were four of these examples that worked really well for any sort of team, whether it's a Belgarth team or an SCA team or a, a Warhammer 40k team. Um, these are good ways to just keep people on your team. And the first one is visit your soldiers frequently. And this is to say, go around and make sure that people are happy, make sure that they have what they need, and make sure that they feel like they are a valued member of your organization. If you're coming around and talking with people individually and remembering their names and remembering their life and remembering where they're at and what they're struggling with, that gives them a personal connection, not just to you, their leader, but to the rest of the unit as a whole. And that's an important thing for good
0: retention. Because we do this as our hobby, you know on the weekends or in our free time the people who are in, in your unit should be your friends for the most part so if you don't if they don't like them if you don't have that personal connection these people aren't going to stick around or they're going to be less likely to for sure like i've 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 definitely
1: met people who are really die hard a part of their unit and their unit doesn't necessarily take care of their people but they just they're really die hard a part of it you're going to always have those kind of people But if you're wanting to retain a wider variety of people, making sure that they are, they feel like they're a part of it. And and that's having that relationship with their officers or their, their command, their command structure is very important. It's, it's easier to get those patriots if you give them a reason to be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and kind of in that same idea, he recommends to keep people busy. Um, give them something to do. If people are sitting around with nothing to do, they're going to get bored. They're going to wander off. Maybe they'll find a unit that's a bit more active, maybe has a bit more activities or things going on. And, and that's a bit more interesting. And so if you're keeping people busy, not just with field work, not just with busy work, but with fun things to do at night, fun things to do as a group, uh, then, then you've give, you're giving them active reasons to be there. It's not just a philosophical reason or, or some sort of uh, contract that has been drawn up, you're actually engaging them and, and letting them have fun. People want to go where they're going to have fun, especially in a place that isn't compulsory. You want to make sure that, uh, you've, you've kept them busy. And again, not just with, oh, go dig a trench. Oh, you know, uh, sharpen
0: your sword again or whatever. It's, it's also a
1: matter of, of giving people reasons to stick around.
0: Uh, nightlife trials are a really good one for this, especially if you can make sure that they are like, Legitimately fun trials to do, not just people love trials, yeah, and and not just like you know, hour long bear pit slogs, like those can be important for a reason, but those get exhausting after a while. And if
1: and if every trial is an hour long bear pit slog, it gets kind of old. So, uh, a variety of options
0: is very important, too.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and the next point he comes to is if somebody does desert. You want to examine the causes of it, especially if it occurred because of somebody up in your chain of command. If there's an officer that you have that is driving people away, if people are not being fairly compensated for their time or for their effort, you need to know about that because that's a problem that can lead to greater desertion. It's not enough to just say, don't desert, it's not good. It's also important to say, okay, why did this happen? What can we do to improve retention in the future? I know this was something in the army. Anybody who left the army, even if it was just because you know your time was up and you, and you had other things to do with your life, you had to go through the retention officer who said, "Okay, why are you going? What could we offer you to make you stay?" That was an important part of being a part of the real army. Think about how much more important it is to be a part of an organization where you're not being paid to be there, where you're not getting life insurance or health insurance or benefits of any kind. You're just enjoying beating nerds up on the weekend, like knowing why people are leaving and what you can do to keep them around the best person to tell you that somebody who deserted
0: well and it's one of those truisms that people don't leave jobs they leave managers right right absolutely and i have definitely seen that a lot in Bellagarth of you know so-and-so might be a really good friend but they might not be and i don't have anyone specific here but you know sir so-and-so but they might not be a great boss And so if you keep that person as the boss, just because he's a good friend, it can backfire on you.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Or if you've got policies in place, I know I had to make adjustments in the great hunt, for instance, like early on, I had some very rigid rules on how things were supposed to be done. And as the great hunt grew and, uh expanded to more places and to more uh, realms, I, re- I came to realize that that rigid way of doing things was not going to work in the long, in the long term. Now, I didn't realize that right away. There was, there was a little bit of pushback from people being like, dude, these, these rules you have in place are entirely too rigid. And at that point, I had a decision to make. I could either loosen things up a little bit or I could like stick to my guns as it were, and potentially ruin the organization because it wasn't flexible enough to survive. And so that's, that's another thing going on here too, just because something is one way in the beginning, doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. And as leadership, you need to be open to the flexibility of change, uh, to, to time passing and to better methods of doing things coming along.
0: In history, almost any time that we meet a brilliant leader, a brilliant general of some kind either they rebuilt their army from scratch or the person before them built their army from cr- scratch and they were able to like bring it up, but that, you know, rebuilding the army thing seems to have to happen every, it, I mean, it varies depending on the age of technology, but even in ancient times, every century or two, there'd have to be some like major rebuilding these days. It's probably every decade or so in, you know, something like wargaming, It's constantly. Yeah. like, how many freaking editions of Warhammer 40K has come out by this point or new codexes for armies? or?
1: This is the eighth edition of Warhammer,
0: yeah. So, I mean, Warhammer's 40 years old or something like that. It's been redone five times. You do not need to get stuck in this is how we used to do it.
1: It's the same thing in, in something like Bellagarth or I'm sure the SCA or Amp Guard. Um, the way the rules were when they were originally written... Have changed as technology and as as people have changed and we've had to include new bylaws and new rules on on the specifications for building weapons and maintaining weapons what passes what doesn't pass all those things have changed throughout the years and so this this need to be flexible exists in all levels not just at the unit or the realm level but you have to be willing to say okay i've got this favorite sword that used to be min weight and now they've adjusted what min weight was Now, am I going to sit here and whine because my sword is no longer min-weight, or am I going to do what I need to do to adjust to the times? Like, that's up to you. That's up to you. But Frederick says you need to, you need to at least be open to understanding why something is failing and be willing to change it. And the last point that he makes here on this idea of preventing desertions is to leave no one behind. And for him specifically, it's having things in place so that when you're packing up camp and moving from one place to another, you've got accountability like, uh, uh, sergeants or, or lieutenants who have got the numbers for their units and they know where everybody is. So you're not leaving people behind. So there's not just people being like, if I hide out in this tree
0: trunk, they'll not notice me. Ha ha. I was reading about his army real quick, and they were talking about, you mentioned sergeants, that one of the reasons he was so effective was he had a really great supply of sergeants and those raised from the ranks officers, the, those mid-level NCOs. officers. NCOs. NCOs, yep. thank you. He had really,
1: really good NCOs. Yep, it wasn't just his officers that were well-trained and well-educated. He made sure he had a solid NCO corps too, because anybody who's been in the actual armed services will tell you that NCOs run the military at least a good military. So uh, Frederick definitely had that squared away too. Uh, But so in this particular case, leaving no one behind, that means that when you're moving from camp to the field, that everybody who wants to come has a chance to come. You're not leaving people behind at camp. And if you're transitioning from the field to camp, vice versa, if you're going to feast, if you're going to some nightlife activity, you're making sure to include people. You're making sure that the people in your unit or your realm or whatever your organization is, are, are on the same page and they're coming along if they want to. Again, if, if somebody doesn't want to, like if I'm beat at the end of the day and I don't want to go to a nightlife activity, I'm very glad that my dark angels brothers and sisters are like, okay, dude, well just sleep it off and we'll see you tomorrow. Like you don't have to drag people out of their tents,
0: but like. Yeah. We're not press ganging anyone to pub and dub. But
1: they absolutely make sure that if I want to go, I know they're like, hey, Malark, we see that you're not out here with us. Or were you wanting to go to X, Y, and Z? And it's like, oh no, I'm good in my tent for right now you know, I might not go with them, but at least they ch- checked in, you know, at least they touched base. And at least I still feel included. I still feel like I'm a part of the unit and a part of what's going on. And this is so very important for anything that you are wanting to make sure that people feel included and want to be a part of it is, is really literally just inclusion, just, just physical inclusion is so important.
0: Well, and it takes you four seconds to ask. Yeah. It, and it it will, it can improve a person's entire day. So many of us struggle with stuff like anxiety. And it's really easy to be like, oh God, people, they, they don't want, especially when you're tired, be like, they don't want me around. And then just one person being like, hey, bud, you want to go to pub and dub? Even if I don't want to go to pub and dub, that'll automatically help cancel a lot of that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so your attention goes up, your feel goods go up. Everybody's having a good time. Everybody's performing better. It's, it's just a good way to be. Was there anything else you wanted to say about defense real quick?
0: You know, I've got one thing that he suggests doing to keep people from uh, fleeing that I suggest we very much don't do. Word. But, and that is uh, by forming carefully a chain of guards around the camp so that no one can pass them. <laughs> and again, I know that I keep coming back to this of reading things and be like, <clears throat> oh my God. That'd be the worst if we actually tried to do that. But it's just.
1: Mm. Like I said, as Thumbs has just pointed out, if you're re- reading along at home and you're uh, reading, because again, this is, we've, we've chose four of these out of a list of, of what? There's like 10 or 20 there that he, he mentioned. I think there's about 10. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we chose four of them that make sense for what we do. But if you want to laugh, go through and try to picture your friends complying with some of the, uh, some of the things he suggests
0: in there. It's, <laughs> it's kind of funny. We had a unit trial once it was like our our way of kind of messing with new people in a friendly way of but when they became a full member this is in an old unit that you and i were in the dreadgate mercenaries they were supposed to stand guard for the evening around camp for like an hour yeah yeah i like that tradition and they would just like check in with people going in and out and uh, we would mess with them and it was a lot of fun but it was a definite real quick of like We do this one night. Right. If we did this every night of the week, it would just drive us up a wall.
1: Nobody would be happy with that. Um, yeah, nobody, nobody is getting paid to be there. Nobody's there under, under pain of death. And so saying, Hey, instead of having a good time tonight, we want you to stand here and look tough. Um, Again, we get, we have people who volunteer as bouncers for, for some of the parties that happen or people who are security. You are different and you are heroes. We love you. You're volunteers and you're wonderful. But telling somebody to stand guard over their own camp when there's no conceivable need to, um, unless you're really serious about the assassins tournament. Yeah. Don't do that.
0: Well, and that one was fun because it kind of fit into the earlier point of give people something to do because we made a game of it, of that night people stood guard.
1: Exactly. And in that, in that particular case, I liked it because, again, it was a little tradition. You had to do it once in your DGMA career, and it was something that people made fun. They'd come by and hang out with you and 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 make it into a into a fun thing rather than just being like, oh, I got to be here and it's boring.
0: We stole Sir Tethian's tent. He wasn't a sir yet at the time, but we stole sir, Teth- sir Tethian's tent while he was doing this. And it's been 10 years. I still tell that story.
1: It's a funny story, man. <laughs> like- <laughs> but Speaking of stories, I think it's about time for us to move on to our, uh, our battle report for this uh, episode. And uh, the, the battle we're covering is actually one from Frederick's own repertoire, but I couldn't think of a battle that in, in, kind of embodied these principles that we've been talking about more than one of his own. And that battle is the one that occurred at Rossbach.
0: things i was reading about in the intro to my copy of this book was that napoleon was a really big fan of frederick and honestly frederick the great would have been better remembered today for all the stuff that he does so well if napoleon hadn't come along 50 years later and built off what frederick showed you could do and did it like a step better. And he also did it with a
1: lot more self-aggrandizement. Like you notice oh, yeah. throughout this book that there's very little of Frederick talking about his greatness or how awesome he is. Like it's it's a very practical book.
0: Um, and it's also very Prussia is great. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's there's a very national thing about it. While Napoleon was very, look at these things I did, and Napoleon is amazing, but Frederick was doing. Basically the same stuff or the precursors to what Napoleon was able to do fifty years earlier without the advantage of looking back and seeing what someone else had done of quite the same level. Examples of that comes up a lot here in the Battle of Rossbach. Rossbach. and as I said here, we'll try not to do, you know, let's do a Frederick battle in every Frederick episode, because that gets boring for you and it gets boring for us. But this is a very good example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Frederick in this particular battle kind of epitomizes everything we were talking about, especially with the having an eye for the defense, because this was during the the third Celestian war, uh, the one that he fought kind of on the back foot because he had gained territory in the, the first two Celestian wars. And then for this one, he had the whole diplomatic revolution against him. And so, um, rossbach was, was one of those battles that was kind of it was, it was a tumultuous thing. Like the, the, the outcome of this battle was extremely important uh, for, in terms of the way that the rest of the war would go and what Prussia would look like when that war was done.
0: Yeah. If he lost, he was pretty much over here, most likely.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, his victory here was was extremely important, not just because it got France out of this war, but because it set him up for an even more devastating victory later at Luthen. Um, we actually discussed this battle back in episode eleven. So, if you want a refresher on this one after we're done, uh, you can go back and listen to that. But that was another really good Frederick battle, and it was a part of the same campaign. It was literally days after the battle that we're talking about here. Now, the Battle of Rossbach was like five days worth of maneuvering and 90 minutes worth of fighting. Um, and the, and the, the players in, that were involved here were of course, Frederick representing Prussia. And on the other side, you had a combined force of the French and Imperial forces, uh, that were headed up by Prince Joseph of, oh man, I'm going to mess this up. Saxe Hildberghausen. Yep. And, uh, Prince Charles de Rohan, um, he was also referenced as something else in, in what we were reading. Um, I I can't remember the name of, uh, where exactly he came from, but he's often referenced as the, the prince of his
0: region, which I'm blanking on for Uh, whatever reason. Slesia, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's it. Um, so you had these two representing this faction, which outnumbered the Prussian faction about two to one. He had 20, 22,000 Prussian soldiers against 42,000 French and Imperial soldiers.
0: Real quick, when we say Imperial, that is, as we mentioned last time, the Holy Roman Empire, that meant mostly Austrians at the time.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, this is mostly Austria and affiliated states um, and then definitely France this was inevitable. This, this encounter was kind of inevitable because again, Frederick had been seizing territory, trying to bring Prussia together and
0: give some continuity to his country and some protection on his borders for a while now. He also really disliked the Austrians. He throws some shade in this chapter. Yeah. And this,
1: this book was written before this war took place. And so they, they
0: didn't, they didn't have
1: access to this book yet, but like you could tell that the, the tension was definitely there. And so you had this, these, all these forces coming into the country. You had not just France and the Holy Roman Empire, but also the Russians and the Swedes, this whole diplomatic revolution that was invading Pr- uh, Prussia at the time. And so Frederick d- decided to engage this force of the French and the, the, the imperial forces first because it was the strongest. And he, his reasoning was, if he could knock this one out, the other ones would be easier to deal with. I like his reasoning. This is typically what I do on the field as well, is I'll go after my opponent's strongest units, whether in a game of 40K, or I'll go after their strongest fighters or, um, or weapon type in Belgarth. And if I'm overcome... You know whoops i I messed up, and hopefully that doesn't lead to the loss of of my team, but if I'm able to destroy their strongest thing very first off, then they got nothing they got nothing, and I'm able to then work with my strength for the rest of that campaign or the rest of that battle or the fight or what have you and so he had the very similar idea here, and so this battle took place on the fifth of November in seventeen fifty seven but like I said, it was It was preceded by several days of maneuvering as these two armies tried to get into a good position on one another. And so Frederick assembled his army, first off, from three different locations, Hille, Marselburg, and Weissenfels. Now, this is significant because, like we were saying earlier, with setting up these strategic stockpiles all over your country... Frederick had done that. And so he had these very well-trained forces that he was able to pull from, from a couple of different areas to make one sizable, uh, usable force. Whereas if he had just had one big force somewhere, then his enemies could have easily just avoided that and fought it when they wanted to. Whereas he was kind of able to call the shots a bit more by materializing a large force where he needed it. And so that served him extremely well here. And again, we're, we're not talking about specifically doing that in most forms of wargaming. I often do that if I'm playing Planetfall or Civilization, um, keep several small forces scattered around my empire that I can bring together in one large army. Um, I find that works better than just having an army
0: someplace that can be crushed. Yeah, but less specific on the more single battle wargaming stuff here.
1: Right, right. And so he, he brought, he brought this force together. Um, and then you, we have, we start to see this maneuver occurring. And so originally he deploys West of Shortau. And so this is on the, the West side of this valley. Um, and then when the enemy starts to uh, get into the area and oppose him, he moves back across that valley to the high ground near the Janus, the Janus Heights, the Janus Hills. Um, and, and kind of digs in there and trenches there. Um, makes
0: that solid front line that we were talking about. One thing we should mention during this, these five days of maneuvering, the area that they were in the, uh, it wouldn't be the peasantry by this point, but the, the civilians of the area didn't really like the Prussians, but they really actively disliked the French and the Imperials. Right,
1: right. So it's a little bit of an enemy of my enemy sort of thing.
0: Yeah, you don't need the people to like you. You just need the people to like you more than the other people. It's useful. (laughs) Um, And it, it is since this battle is so much about the preparation. So when the final fight happens, it just is a stomp. That is a very important aspect of it. He was able to get information and he was able to have them not get information.
1: Yeah, and the information is the key factor here because like we've said time and time again, knowing your enemy, knowing the constant updates on your enemy's status is extremely important in order to do well in any sort of war or wargaming scenario. And so that's what he managed to do here by just happening, he was on the better side of the people who were in this area. And so he was able to set up this position in the Heights and then he waited and watched and he had a very good position to do both of those things and also collected intelligence from the local Peasantry or the local uh, uh, constituents. So, at this point, uh, the enemy forces start to move around um, to the south, and they they're moving down towards uh, Zuchfeld. As they're coming up from there, Frederick realizes that they're going for like an envelopment. Uh, they're trying to get on all sides and and shake him loose because again, they've got more numbers. They're just trying to get into an advantageous position to get Frederick down. Who they didn't necessarily take all that seriously. Again, all, all the all the victories this guy has won and people still are not
0: taking him seriously. Like that just, that just blows my mind. It's such a pride thing. I mean, the, the British empire is huge by this point. France is the thorn and the side of the British empire. They have their own large empire. There are international wars going, as we talked about, this is the first like real world war, but Prussia is still these, this tiny little European country. I mean, even if it's considered one of the big boys, it's still like the fifth biggest boy. So people kept being like, oh, whatever. It's just Prussia. And it was never just Prussia. It never worked well when they thought it's just Prussia. Again,
1: you never want to underestimate any opponent, especially one who is heavily skilled, which is what, which is what you kind of had going on here. And so they're coming in for this encirclement kind of to the South. and. At this point, Frederick does a reposition. He repositions Sadelitz's Prussian cavalry from uh, Janus's hill over to Poultson Hill, and uh, which is above where the enemy is going to be coming. And then he repositions his infantry from his right wing to the south. Now, I, I know that trying to visualize these things without having a map in front of you might be kind of difficult. And I would encourage you, anytime we're doing a battle report, to go and look up the map of that battle while we're talking about it because it helps so much just be able to visualize what's going on. There's just, there's not as much as we're going to be able to describe that you can just see for yourself. So this is impressive. This, this, this re maneuver, this reposition that he pulls is very impressive because thumbs, you were telling me earlier that they were so well trained and so well drilled that they managed to like pack up and move
0: in under a half an hour, right? Yeah. In half an hour, they went from, from what I could tell, their tents set up to actively moving. This is, you gave me the numbers and I'm blanking them right now. I'm sorry, but it's thousands of troops. Yeah, well
1: you've got, you've got 22,000 troops here that are, and again, it was only 25% of his forces that ended up being engaged in this battle. But uh, the, the fact that they were able to reposition so quickly to a new area was, was part of, again, the reason he was able to be so successful as a commander. To any of us who have been to an outdoor event And especially to you event coordinators, I bet it would be wonderful if people could break camp and get the heck out of your hair in a half hour or
0: under, but, uh, that, that does not happen. (laughs) Well, you and I have worked on trail crews out in the woods and you know, that's seven people. And there are times where it takes more than half an hour for the seven people to get their backpacking equipment packed up and ready to go. This is all of that. Plus all of their military gear. That is that is a terrifying level of capability here.
1: And efficiency. Again, like when they're, when they are talking about the Prussian, uh, infantry and the Prussian military efficiency, this is it. Their ability to, to, you know, pack things up and get it going. This is part of it because being where you need to be when you need to be there is half of winning the battle.
0: Well, and this is an easy one to forget. Cause I mean, we've harped on now about they can shoot four or five shots a minute and we'll probably mention it again. Cause that is so cool. And so insane. This is just as important. Exactly. If possibly more important. Exactly. And then the combination of it is huge, but it's not the sexy fun
1: bits. So I don't know. Winning a battle is pretty sexy and it's pretty fun. So, uh, I don't I think it's all included. <laughs> So at this point, um, the, the enemy cavalry, the Franco Imperial Cavalry has gotten ahead quite, quite, uh, quite by a bit of the infantry columns. And so Sadelitz and his 32 squadrons of Cav charge down from Poultson Hill and uh, as right as the, the, the enemy cavalry are starting to go up and it just, it just scatters them, scatters them in total confusion and they retreat back, back past towards, oh man, I'm going to, Anybody from Germany, I apologize right now for the butchering I'm about to do for this town name. We are deeply sorry. Reichard Ben. Yeah, we're going to go with that. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm not even going to try that again. That's just it. And so the cab is gone. This cab that was supposed to not just screen, not just scout, but also like be support for the infantry column is gone. It has no continuity. It's basically routed, but it is scattered and confused and gone. So at this point, the infantry started to come up and, uh, the Prussian infantry had reached the appointed position that they were moving to kind of to the west of that town that I'm not going to try to pronounce again. And they formed up at an acute angle with the rest of the line and the rest of the enemy marched into that angle, unsupported by their own cavalry. The French columns were massacred there because not only did they march into this, this kind of concave shape uh, of, of withering fire again, four to five rounds a minute per person, like just going down into it. But all that cavalry that, uh, that just kind of rode off, it didn't ride off. Sadelitz comes back and he just rides in and crushes this line. And so this battle is over 90 minutes. It's a 90 minute battle from the time that the shooting starts here, to the time that it ends. 90 minutes. And this particular part, this, this, this infantry crush was 15 minutes. That is so fast. Like, again, we've talked about battles that have lasted for days and, and this was just so, so overwhelming. Now there were a couple factors that went in here. There were not good pickets again. This was another situation where there was a, like you were saying, there was a, um, hubris to the Franco-Imperial forces that they didn't feel the need to properly scout. They didn't feel the need to understand exactly where Frederick was. They thought he was retreating. When he moved back across that valley where we were talking, um, when, he, when he did his reposition, they thought that he was just straight up retreating. They didn't know that he'd just set up an entirely new line and was ready and waiting for them by the time that they got to those hills. That would have been some pretty useful information to have. Yeah, that's... <laughs> there's not really anything to add to that. Just,
0: oh, please don't.
1: Yeah. I, 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 so, so the, the, the end results here were, were absolutely incredible. Again, I was looking over this battle again to refresh my memory and I had forgotten how, uh, how devastating of a victory it was for Frederick, but of his 22,000 troops, uh, somewhere between 70 and 169 were killed and anywhere between 379 and 430 were wounded. So all things considered, a a fairly small portion of his force. But on the imperial, the Franco-imperial side of things, you had 35 or 3,500 dead or wounded and anywhere between 5,000 and 13,800
0: captured. They lost, I want to say, six generals. Yeah. Which is crazy. And the Prussians took 72 cannons as trophies. That is a lot
1: of very, very useful trophies.
0: That is, that's so many cannons. That is just the money that's cost them, if nothing else.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's not, again, like you say, it's not just the ability to shoot at your enemies. It's all the time and money that went into the production of those cannon as well, which were not cheap and were not, uh, easy to come by. Like it was a very specialized thing producing these weapons. And so to lose that large of a number was rough. And like we said, France was done after this. They were like, nope, we're not playing no more. We're not gonna, this is not a a thing we want to do. Uh, and so they backed out of the campaign entirely which was huge. And, and part of this, of course, was the fact that remember that the seven years war is going on. And so they have a huge amount of pressure on them and their colonies in the Americas at the moment, because Britain is also a part of this. They're not really a part of the campaign on the continent, but you better believe that they were all about messing up France's mojo across the seas. And so France was dealing with a lot of issues here. And they said, you know what, this, this little chihuahua, this, uh, this Frederick chihuahua over here, um, we're done. He's yippy. Um, and We don't like him, so <laughs> they, they they just backed out. It's war. a
0: lot of work, and we're not going to get enough of a reward for it. Like it, it just wasn't worth the fight for them.
1: Exactly, and so within this battle, you see several things that Frederick talked about in this first section of his book very heavily at play. You have this idea of setting up these shallow flank, these like these prime priming the apex when somebody's trying to do a flank of any sort, setting up for that counter. You also see the the extreme amount of emphasis placed on drill and the precision that that was enabled him to have in his maneuver. And then of course, the fact that he was always looking to use the best of his terrain and his lines of communication. There was not a good communication between uh, the Franco-Imperial forces. They didn't really know that the cavalry had been crushed when they sent in those columns of infantry. They were just like, all right, this is just according to the plan. We're just going forward, I guess. It'll be fine. It's time. Yeah. It wasn't fine. It didn't work out very well. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, this was a, this is a really good battle. Uh, and I thought that it was one of, it's, it's obviously one of Frederick's finest. And I thought that it really
0: uh, illustrated these
1: points quite well.
0: Uh, it has also one of my favorite moments or my favorite moment that I've read about Frederick so far or Frederick's armies that didn't come up in the actual details. Cause it's not as important for the overall battle tactics, but while the cavalry was waiting to charge their head uh his name was Saditz. i'm no way I'm pronouncing that correctly I'm sorry Saditz. yeah Saditz uh was sitting there waiting for his charge to happen, waiting for his cavalry charge, and he's sitting in front of his troops, just calmly smoking a pipe just. Whatever, relax. And when the other troops came into view and it was time to attack, he threw his pipe up into the air as their symbol to charge. And it's kind of this whole thing is kind of brilliant on top of just being a really weird way to go about it. Because on one hand, it's so extra. It's so over the top, like just calmly and then throwing the pipe. But it gives such a sense of confidence and amusement to your troops. Because, you know, if your leader is sitting in front of you smoking calmly, then you're not going to be that worried. You're going to get that sense of confidence. Exactly.
1: Your your leader's up there going about this in a very, uh, like with this bravado, with this
0: uh, flair to it. Like what's not to follow there? Well, and giving that flair and giving that kind of goofiness of it, of like throwing the pipe, gives a... Uh, a sense of unity. It gives a sense of amusement. People who are amused by their leaders are more likely to follow their leaders. I feel like mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, I can relate to them. They make me laugh. Oh, a sense of humor is great. It's it's a huge part of being an effective leader. I think. Yeah. And it's, as I said, this, the scene didn't really come up in the battle itself because it's such a subtle moment, but it's the part that really popped out to me of why the Prussians were as good and as impressive as they were.
1: And they had like,
0: not only did they have
1: that confidence and that bravado, like we were saying, but they had the skill and the precision to back it up, which I think is going to be an overwhelming theme of the rest of this book is just that idea of making sure that you are on top of your game. And and like we've said before, during this quarantine, it might seem like everybody's kind of going to go stale, but I don't think that has to be the case. I think through the use of sword forms and light calisthenics and uh, keeping our minds sharp that we can stay just as uh, true to our form as we would otherwise. We don't have to become rusty during
0: this time. I've discovered more than once that taking a break has made me a better fighter.
1: Now that too, it can open you up to new ideas. It, it, keep, it breaks some of those entrenched things away and allows you to approach problems in a new way. It's not a
0: bad thing at all. Well, I can come back kind of more relaxed and more like ready for stuff as opposed to, you know, if I've been focusing on one problem for a couple of months, break away, go away for a little while, come back. And I haven't been as like focused and to exaggerate it, freaking out about that one thing as much. Like I've I've had a break from all that. Exactly. Exactly. You can come back a little fresh. Give it your best again. Um.
1: So yeah, I, I, I think that, so this is, this is going to be a good thing for all of us. I can't wait for the first event that we all get to go to and, uh, and whack on each other again. I think everybody's going to be in really good form. And of course, very happy to see one another after such a prolonged break. Um, so I know me personally, I'm looking forward to seeing all your beautiful smiling faces once again.
0: That's the part I'm looking forward to. The attitude that everyone's going to have is going to be so good and so positive because we'll remember why we are here. That's the hope. Definitely.
1: What well, did you have anything else to add on, on, uh, this first
0: chapter of Frederick or on the battle of Rossbach? No, it is, uh, it's a pretty straightforward battle for as complicated as it was. And it's a pretty straightforward chapter once you, you know, stop trying to make plans for Bohemia.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, and we're already making plans for our next episode, which uh, you can catch uh, at your normal viewing place uh, in a couple of weeks. But if you want to reach out to us and continue the conversation that we've been having, uh, you can always email at us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at uh, very similar handles, Art Gaming. Um, And then we've also got a website, tauwargaming.com, which you can also use to find our sister shows uh, at the rest of
0: your Verm productions. Yeah, you can go to TaoWargaming.com, which is T-A-O Wargaming, or you can go to just EarVerm.com, which is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M, which has us and our sister shows, uh, General Nerdery and Fried Squirms. They're all weird, fun, nerd-related shows. If you like one of them, you'll probably like all of them. And if you want to help
1: us out here at uh, the Art of War Gaming, please make sure to repost, like, subscribe, uh, give us a five-star review wherever you listen. That really goes a long way to getting us out to a broader audience and um, helping us to do more with the show. The
0: internet exists on algorithms, and the more you do stuff with us, the more we will pop up, the more we'll be in those algorithms. But
1: until next time, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off.